I would like to show you a very moving uh, Christmas picture up here on the screen. Isn't that inspiring? You think that was taken before Christmas or after? Clearly after, right? All the smiles have kind of turned into grimaces and frowns. Um, all that anticipation of giving the perfect gift has been replaced by the disappointment of what actually happened on Christmas, right? Dreaming about those family gatherings and the laughter of children have been replaced with the dread of long, icy, dark days and endless shoveling of snow. Aren't you glad you came up to church this morning? <laughs> you know, we've been saying these last few weeks, it's really hard for us to look at Christmas with fresh eyes because we've been through a bunch of Christmases, right? And so when you hear Christmas, all these memories, all this baggage, all these traditions comes up. That's even true for this week after Christmas. Because when you think of this week we're in now, all kinds of things come to mind, right? You've got returning gifts, you've got cleaning up, seeing how much money you spent. You might have some happier things like time off of school and work and plans for New Year's and, and things like that. But all of those are so hard to get out of our minds. So what we're going to try to do this morning is to rewind the clock 2,000 years and, and to somehow try to hear the message fresh for people who didn't have any of those memories. We want to ask the question, now that Christ has come, what should change about the way I look at my future? Now that Jesus has been born, now that he's here, how does that change the way we look at the future? So the first week we looked at Christmas through the eyes of, of Joseph. Last week we looked at how it might have looked through the eyes of Mary. Today let's put ourselves in the shoes of the wise men, otherwise known as the Magi. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So the, the obvious question is, who were these guys, these magi? They weren't, they weren't kings, like the song says. Um, the Greek word is magoi. Any guesses what English word we get from magoi? It's the word magic. So the, the magi were a class of wise men who worked for the royalty, for the government of Persia. So they were highly educated, especially in astrology and interpreting special signs. Um, so they were interested in stars. They were interested in dreams. They would study the scriptures of different religions to try to predict the future. And when they saw this star, somehow they knew that it would guide them to the king of the Jews. And the question is, how did they know that? Did God just 
directly reveal that to them? Did he kind of just zap that knowledge into them? Maybe. I mean, God can do that. God does that sometimes in Scripture. So maybe that, that's what happened. But I think there's another explanation that, that is, is very probable and that actually makes a lot of sense out of the big picture. Um, the Magi were from the Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iran. And if you were a Jewish person living in the first century and you got a hold of Matthew's gospel and you read about this, you read about the Persian Empire, it would bring back terrible memories. Because every Jewish person knew that the darkest chapter in Israel's history took place in that same exact region. Um, Before Persia was there, it was ruled by Babylon. And 600 years earlier, before the time of Christ, armies from that region came and they attacked Israel. And they prevailed. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. They killed a lot of people there. And a, a big group of survivors, they marched back about 900 miles east to Babylon, and there they lived as exiles. So if you were a Jewish person, the place where these magi was from represented the darkest, most shameful point in your history. They didn't want to think about that. However, there was a little bright spot. You know, there's always a few bright spots in even in dark times. One of the bright spots during that time in Israel's history was the birth of a young man named Daniel. He was born into a Jewish family, living in exile in Babylon. And when Daniel became a teenager, he was just a sharp kid. He was diligent. He was smart. Um, he, he was very uh, well, well uh, respected by his peers. And so he was given a prominent position in the government of Babylon. Stayed true to his faith. Stayed true to his Hebrew roots. But he was respected so much that he was given an important position in, in, uh, in the kingdom. Now, here's where it gets interesting. And this is a connection that I actually just heard of for the first time um, from a pastor named Daniel Hill out in Chicago. Take a look with me at Daniel chapter 2 verse 48. This is about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. So think about this for a minute. Not only did Daniel become part of the magi, he became the head magi. He became the head, I guess it's magus, right? Singular. He became the head of the magi. So think about this, this situation. Here's this faithful Hebrew man suddenly influencing all these astrologers. Doesn't it make sense to you that somewhere along the line, Daniel would have told them about this prophecy of a coming Messiah? I mean, that was, a, that was so close to the heart of every Hebrew person. And I can't help but, but think that somewhere along the line, Daniel told them of this prophecy, this thing that would happen. And so it makes sense to me that even after Daniel was dead and gone, that prophecy was passed down from generation to generation among the Magi. And then when Jesus was finally born, the combination of remembering Daniel's word, plus their astrological training all came together and they saw this star and they said, that's the thing we've been waiting for. And they followed the star knowing that it would lead them to the king of the Jews as they had been waiting for now for 600 years. And I realize there's a little speculation in that view, but I think it's very possible. And here's what it does to me. It reminds me of something that even at the darkest times and the most shameful times, God is not absent. That he is weaving something, even though we usually can't see it, we have no idea what it is, that God is up to something and he's weaving together things to make them happen as he was for for the people of Israel. So here's what I want to do this this morning. Here we are uh, four days before a brand new year, right? And we're thinking about our lives. And for some of us, maybe life 
Maybe, maybe God hasn't shown up a lot that we can see. There's been darkness. Maybe there's been some shameful things in our past. And yet even in that, God is at work and he's weaving things in each of our lives. And so as we think about what that means, what would it mean for you to look at this new year and, and step into whatever it is that God is weaving together for you? Where does he want you to move forward in your spiritual journey? And I think we can see in the story of the Magi three different ways that they were moving forward, three things that they teach us in how to lean into the thing that God is weaving for us. So here's the first thing that I learned from the Magi. Risk. Because every time I study this passage, I'm more impressed with the gutsiness of these guys. It was about a 900-mile journey that they took, which back in that day... I mean, it was just, it was risky. It was scary. I don't know if they walked the whole way, if they took camels part of the way. This was not a safe journey to make. But I think even more impressive, there was risk involved in standing up to King Herod. Just remember, at this time, when they came to Israel, they were not coming to an independent country. Right? Israel was very much under the Roman Empire. Right? They'd been conquered by Rome. And in every part of the Roman Empire, which was a vast empire, there would be area kings who would rule that region of the empire. And in that region, Judea, which is where Israel was, the, the regional king was a guy named Herod, otherwise known as Herod the Great. And Herod was, the guy was a character. He, first of all, he was feared because he was brutal, like most Roman rulers were. This is kind of a famous painting of Herod conquering Jerusalem uh, which happened in 36 BC. So that was the year that, that Israel fell to the Roman Empire. And there is Herod the Great, same guy that we read about in the Gospels, coming in to conquer Israel. He was a brutal man. But at the same time, he was kind of respected and admired because he was clever. He had some political savvy. He oversaw some great famine relief projects when people in his kingdom were, were hungry. He organized a lot of food to come to them, and that won some respect. Um, he's well known for his building project, including, by the way, a total rebuild of the Jewish temple. So won some points with his Jewish population by rebuilding a temple. So when you read about Jesus at the temple, for example, in the Gospels, that's the temple that, that Herod rebuilt. So he had won some points among the Jewish population. So had a very illustrious career. By the time Jesus was born, he's an older man. He was becoming very ill. And in his illness, Herod began to get paranoid. He began to cling on to his power and be very threatened by anything that seemed to be a, a, a competition to his power. So think about it. The Magi show up to this man, King Herod, who, by the way, called himself the king of the Jews. And they said to him, hey, we've heard there's this new king of the Jews born. Can you let us know where he is? And it says, Herod was deeply disturbed. And it says, and by the way, all Jerusalem was disturbed with him because they were so afraid of this guy. If he was upset, they were upset. So Herod calls together the Jewish priests and the scribes and he asks them, according to your scriptures, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And without missing a beat, they say, oh, Bethlehem, obviously. And they quote from the prophet Micah who had written that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Um, we are reminded that Christmas marks the arrival of a king. And he's a king who's entered into the world that, that demands our allegiance over every other king. And so other kings will be threatened by that. In fact, if you fast forward 33 years or so, 
and Christianity started to take root in the Roman Empire, and it's well known that there was a lot of arrests and a lot of persecution of Christians. When they would arrest Christians, they would not say to them, you need to deny the teachings of Jesus. You need to deny that you believe in the parables of Christ. What they said to the Christians was, you need to say right now that Nero is your king. And for the most part, the Christians refused to do that, and they said, I have one king, and he's named Jesus. And because of that refusal to deny Jesus as king, hundreds and thousands of them were put to death because they held true to Christ as king. So Christmas marks the arrival of a new king on the scene, and Herod was threatened by that deeply. Um, So he tells the Magi, starts scheming already, right? Why don't you go to Bethlehem, find out where he is, and then come to me so I can come and worship him too. And you can almost see that little evil Grinch smile as he says that, right? I would like to go worship him too. It doesn't take a genius to know that Herod had no intention of worshiping the child. So the Magi go off to Bethlehem. They do locate Jesus. And then after they've seen him, it says that in a dream, they're warned, don't go back to Herod, go back another way. And so the the Magi suddenly are faced with this dilemma. Do we do what the king says, who's got his people all over the place, or do we do what God seems to have told us to do? And at the end of the day, they decide to obey God and defy Herod. Huge risk. Huge risk. When we follow Jesus Christ, he frequently calls us to make steps of courage and risk. Things that we wouldn't ordinarily do. And I think for some of us, as we think about where our life needs to go next. Is, is, there a, is there a King Herod in your life? Is there a person in your life that you kind of fear, that, that has a lot of influence over you, and you fear, you know, not doing what they say? Maybe what it means for you to step forward in your spiritual journey this year is to listen to the voice of God over the voice of that Herod in your life. You know, I've always loved that saying, he who kneels before God can stand before any man. That's exactly what happened with the Magi, right? They knelt before God in the flesh. And when they got up from worshiping him, suddenly they had the courage to defy Herod. When our hearts are right before God, suddenly we don't have to be that intimidated or controlled by the Herods in our life. And so one of the things that the Magi teach us as we think about our lives this year is to live with courage and listen to the voice of God over every other voice. Well, second thing the Magi teach us is about generosity. And it is interesting to hear some of the theories about um, the symbolism of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Right? And people just have waxed eloquent about that. Gold is the color of royalty or the, the, the uh, material of royalty, so it represents that Jesus would be a king. And frankincense was an oil that was used by priests, so it emphasizes that Jesus would play a priestly role. And myrrh was a burial spice. So even at his birth, Jesus was being, it was foreshadowing the death of Jesus. And it's all so interesting and it makes great sermons. I don't know if any of that is true. I think they might've just had some nice stuff they wanted to give away. Because I think the main idea, the main point is they were so moved by what had been given to them in Christ that they just wanted to give what was most valuable to them back to Jesus. Um, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. And so when we encounter Christ as a gift to us, the response that's natural in us when we really get what's happened is we want to be less stingy. We want to be more generous. It should make us generous people. A few years ago, I did uh, a message on, on giving And to prepare for that message, I emailed the whole congregation. I said, hey, what has God taught you in your life about 
giving and generosity. And a bunch of people responded. One of the ones that, that really stuck with me was this one person who wrote this. Have you ever noticed that the tightest and most selfish people tend to be unhappy and miserable as well? While some of the most joyful people are those that give generously of themselves, their time, and their stuff. Interesting how that works. And I remember reading that email and I said, yeah, I guess I have noticed that. In myself, times that I've been the most cautious and controlling of my resources, I've tended to be the most cranky and non-joyful. And times when I've just been a little, a little extravagant in blessing people and giving things, I've just kind of enjoyed life the most. I have noticed it in, in other people as well. And there's this passage in 2 Corinthians. You know, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 get talked about a lot in terms of giving. But there's a connection in there that I think rarely gets noticed that has meant so much to me in this, in this area uh, as I think about how the arrival of Christ makes us generous. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, verse 10, it's in the context of teaching people to give generously. It says, Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And I find that people love the beginning of verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. In fact, some translations say you will be made rich in every way. And we'd like to pull that out and bumper sticker that, you know, God wants to make us rich in every way. But then they stop and they don't read, well, why would he want to do that so that you can be generous on every occasion? That makes all the difference. And this is this connection that I've noticed, and it's not a direct cause and effect. There's no formulas when it comes to God. But in general, what I've found is that when people are generous, many times God entrusts those people with more so that they can keep being generous. Right? I mean, it's, it kind of makes good business sense. If God wants to get his resources out to people or groups of people, why give it to someone who's going to just clog up the system and keep it? Bad business practice. Why not give it to people who he can trust to move it on to other people? Um, I remember a few years ago, uh, it was just before Christmas, and I don't know if you get these letters, but if you've been around you know, churches for a while and Christian organizations, you start to get the end of the year giving appeals, right? Probably just got one from Jacksonville Chapel. We're in that party too. And people say, end of the year, here's your opportunity to give. And this friend of mine got this letter from a, a guy who works in a Christian mission organization and he and his family support this guy regularly. They really believe in his ministry. And my friend said, you know what? I'm going to do it. He sat down and got his checkbook out, got ready to write him a $500 end of the year gift. As he was writing the check, something told him, make it 1000 So he, just, he wrote a $1,000 check. He put it in the envelope and mailed it off. So the next day, he went to work, and he works for a large corporation. His boss called him into her office, and she said, you've, you've been doing a great job this last quarter and we want to just show you some appreciation for what you've done. Handed him an envelope. Uh, any guesses what was in it? 50 bucks. I'm just, I'm just kidding. No. It was $1,000. And my friend told me about this afterwards. He is one of the most skeptical. He's a Christian. He's a skeptical guy. He's, you know, he's always suspicious of those stories. And he said, I'm telling you, it was exactly the amount I wrote the check for. Why would God do that? so he could continue to be generous, right? God had found a conduit for his resources that when he gave to him, that guy would give them to people that needed those resources. 
So just like the wise men bowed before Jesus, they were so struck by what had been given to them, they wanted to empty out their pockets and give to him. When we encounter what Christ has done for us, it just makes us want to be generous. And there's an adventure to that, you know? When you give generously, not just your leftovers, because now you're living by faith a little bit. You're depending on God, and there's a fun to that process, being part of this chain that moves God's resources around the world. So maybe when you think of, what does it mean for me to step forward in my faith this year? If it, maybe it's a resolution of some sort. Maybe for you, it's, I need, I need just to be a little more open-handed with what God's given me and step into this fun of just giving extravagantly and generously and, and just let God find me faithful in that. Well, there's one more thing that the Magi teach us, risk, generosity. The third thing, this might be the most important, is they teach us about worship. Interesting that when the Magi first show up and they talk to King Herod, they say, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. Because there's something in the human heart that naturally longs to worship. Doesn't need to be taught. It's something inherently in us that wants to find something that's worth getting excited about and bowing before and, and giving our allegiance and our submission to. And so many times we put the wrong thing in that spot, right? We decide it's got to be this person I've got romantic feelings for. And we tell them, you know, I can't live if living is without you. And that's worship. If ever, there, if ever there was worship, that's worship. Or we get all excited about a sport or excited about some celebrity, right? And here was the arrival of this, this person in the world who was actually God in the flesh, was the one thing that's worthy of worship. And the Magi recognized that. And I think it's so significant in this case when you think of the big historical picture because 600 years earlier, armies from the same area had marched to Jerusalem, Right? and they had conquered it and attacked it. And now 600 years later, here are people marching that same 900 miles from the east, but now instead of swords, they're carrying gifts. And instead of forcing the Jews to bow down to them, these guys bowed down to the king of the Jews. Amazing irony and symmetry and beauty in what was happening. It's a breathtaking scene. Because the Magi, these guys were used to nice things. They lived and they worked in a palace they were used to royalty. And now here they are in a stable that smelled with a simple family and this little baby. And yet when they got in the presence of Jesus, they were overwhelmed with the reality that they were in the presence of royalty and deity and nothing else made sense except just to bow down and worship him. You ever wonder how this whole thing affected these guys? There's a great little poem that, that I love to read around Christmas time by T.S. Eliot called The Journey of the Magi. And toward the end of that poem, he has one of the magi saying these words. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. And that, that thought has always fascinated me. What was it like for them to go back? We know they went back home, right? But what then? I mean, did it seem strange to them now after what they had encountered, these people clutching onto all these pagan gods? Did they continue to worship Jesus, you know, from hundreds of miles away? I don't know. I'd love to find out. I don't know what happened with them. But what I do know is that really wise people still bow down and still worship him. And there's, there's a symmetry to the gospel of Matthew as well, because we're looking at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, right? If you go all the way to the end of the gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, so much has happened in between. Jesus has, li has lived this incredible life. He has gone to the cross 
to pay the price for the sins of the world so that people could be reconciled to God. He has risen from the dead on the third day. And, and 40 days later, there's this scene at the very end of Matthew, after the resurrection, Jesus is there and his followers gather to him. In verse 16, it says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I, I just love the honesty of it, right? Even after all they had been through, some of the guys still weren't totally convinced. They still had their questions, but not all of them. Some of them had seen enough. They were convinced he was the real thing. And those fell down on their knees. And just like the Magi had 33 years earlier, these guys worshiped. They knew that's what you do when you're in the presence of Christ. So the Magi teach us about risk. They teach us about generosity. And they teach us about worship. And I guess the question that I want to leave you with is, have you, not do you need prayer yet, that's later, but have you come to a point in your life where you have submitted yourself, where you have bowed down in worship, bowed your will in worship to Jesus Christ. And maybe, maybe that's the thing that God is weaving in your story right now. Maybe that's the reason that, you know, right now, you got up this morning and you thought about not coming to church. It's rainy and you just went to church a couple of days ago, but you came. And maybe that's because there's this thing missing that you, you've known about Jesus, of course, but you can't honestly say you know him. And maybe it's because you've never just bowed your heart before him and said yes to him, allowed him to take control of your life. And if that's the case, I want to give you an opportunity to do that just before you leave today. It is the best thing you could do heading into 2015. So would you rise to your feet in prayer? And let's just join our hearts and come to God in prayer. Father, thank you for your genius working of history of how this nation that had experienced so much darkness and shame was experiencing the light of the world entering into it and how, how the very same people that had come and conquered now came and worshipped. Amazing story. But Father, right now I offer this prayer on behalf of those who need to really open their lives up to you, maybe for the first time. So Lord, I'll offer these words and just invite anyone who wants to make these their own to do that in their own way. God, as I look toward the future, I realize that I need you in my life. And I recognize that when Jesus showed up in this world, he came for me. And I believe that when he went to the cross and was put to death, he was being judged for my sins. Oh Lord, I, I accept that forgiveness that comes from the cross. And I pray now that you would enter into my life. Lord, make me a person of risk and courage who follows you instead of some loud voice in my life. Would you make that true of me in 2015? God, I pray you'd make me a person of generosity that I'd view the things I have as opportunities to bless others and that you would show me um, just how joyful it is to give. And I pray, Lord, that you'd make me a person of worship, that I would just continue to submit myself to you, put you first in everything I do. I pray, Lord, that you would weave together 2015 in my life according to your will. Your will be done. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Amen. Hey, thank you for a wonderful year. God bless you and a happy new year.